Hello, this is Steve Spar, your host for SQ Unplugged, Conversations in Spiritual Intelligence. Spiritual intelligence is the ability to act with wisdom, compassion, and peace in the stress and pressure of the real world. Each episode of SQ Unplugged, I will talk with an SQ21 certified coach, which was a model developed by Cindy Wigglesworth of DeepChange.com. We'll discuss the challenges of how to be spiritually intelligent in the midst of modern life. Hello everyone and welcome. This is SQ Unplugged. I'm Steve Spar, and today I'm here with Carmen Carter. Carmen is an SQ21 certified coach. She's a coach, teacher, educator, speaker, trainer, and co-founder of the nonprofit Center for Intentional Inclusive Community. She supports clergy and parish communities as well as businesses and government entities. Carmen, how you doing? Welcome. Hi, Steve. I'm happy to be here. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, it's really fun talking with you because you are an exuberant, brilliant, eloquent, fun person to be around. I've had the great pleasure to interact with you at our various SQ21 coach conferences, and I'm happy you agreed to, to be on the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm honored and you are so kind, but I too um, have enjoyed um, our interaction and the time that I spent. And it's just an exciting time, uh, especially now for SQ. So thank you for having me. Yeah. Our SQ community of coaches is pretty um, phenomenal, really a special group of people. Absolutely, Steve. I have really enjoyed being a part of the SQ community. And, and I tell you, it's been uh, quite a number of years now, but I've learned so much. And I see the SQ community as my place where I can continue to learn and grow, uh, particularly in the times that we're living in for such a time as this. So it has definitely been one of my go-to places and spaces for the types of conversations and learning and growing um, that has been very beneficial for me as well as those for whom I serve. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I get a lot out of it, out of the community. Now you're bringing up a good point. And we, as we look around at the world, the way that it is right now, so many chaotic things happening, scary things in some ways. So what are you seeing right now that's going on in the world? Where do you think SQ is needed? How do you see that? Wow, that's a very good question, Steve. When I think about SQ, I think about the world we desire. And from my perspective, there's evidence that the idea of the world we desire is one that is intentionally inclusive and a more beloved community. And this beloved community, I see it as a persistent vision of the most desired condition for the human family. And at its core, Steve, uh, it seems to be grounded in a fundamental oneness, which embraces, which embraces the values of unity, diversity, harmony, love, beauty, creativity, all of those things that are embodied in SQ. So when I think about SQ, SQ is a key element and essential um, for anyone developing, working, and serving in a 21st century community, especially when we're trying to uh, create a beloved community. And it's no secret, you know, we've just come off a pandemic. The last couple of years has been a really trying time um, in, our, in our nation and our world. 
definitely in our world. And so I definitely critical moments. Yeah. Tough, tough times in some ways, maybe times of change need that, you know, you use the word beloved. So is that from a traditional religious perspective? Beloved in the sense that we are all loved or beloved by God or however you would phrase that? Absolutely. So it's really interesting. You know, there's the beloved community has different contexts, of course. When most people think about the beloved community, think about the work of Dr. King and the King Center. Um, but it absolutely is rooted in ancient wisdom and spiritual principles. You know, I thought I saw it might have been on your Facebook page or something. I think you had the title, and please correct me if I have this wrong, or, or you gave yourself the title, uh, Unity Evangelist. You may have seen that. Is yes. That, so how, <laughs> you may uni- have seen that, Steve. What's a you Unity may have Evangelist? Seen that. So that's kind of what it feels like. And so when you're thinking about kind of this next level of where we are, um, so what does it mean to create a beloved community, but more importantly, what's required of us. And so when we think about, you know, this fundamental oneness and creating safe spaces where people feel like they belong. Um, and so when I think about evangelists, that's just going out and it's almost like discipleship, Steve, and you're, you're working with people from different backgrounds and all walks of life you know, with this basic premise of how do we create a more beloved community and how do we experience each other differently than what we have and what we've seen. And this is important because of our children, the next generation. So when I think about being a unity evangelist, I think about not so much from the context of what it is, but what's my why? And what's my why? for for that and and for me it is for the next generation it's for our children steve that's beautiful so carmen you said a phrase there that's very interesting about what's required of us mm-hmm. so i'm going to just tell you a short story that just kind of blew me away um are you familiar with the verse micah 6 8 chapter 6 verse 8 it's a part that says uh what does the yes. lord require of us yeah and it is to do justice love mercy love mercy and walk humbly with my god yeah. so that verse for me has always kind of summed up what a religion should be like every yeah. religion now a couple of months ago linda and i were traveling we were at a museum it was a museum about jewish experience and they had that old testament like a verse on the wall and I pointed to it and I said, that verse has always been, as someone who's not of Jewish heritage, you know, but I was connecting with this docent. And I said, that is an amazing verse. It seems to be a distillation of what we should all be. Mm-hmm. He said, let me show you something. He unbuttoned his sleeve mm. and showed me, he had Micah 6, 8 in Hebrew tattooed around his wrist. Wow. And I said, you have got to be kidding me. That's like a a verse I have memorized because it just means something to me. And he goes, it means something to me too. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just thought for somebody to be so touched and moved by a verse, and that verse is a perfect one, you know, to have it tattooed. um, I guess it made me think maybe I'm not very committed 
I should have a tattoo. Well, so, and he gets well, a long it, way to say, you know, what is it? Because the first part of that verse, what does the Lord require of you? And it's so like, is there something from spirit that is requiring something of us in human life? Yes. Yes, Steve. I'd say absolutely yes. Um, and if we were to, it's interesting. One of the things that you know, I do a work closely with clergy in this work. And if we were to just think about that verse, you know, do justice. And if we were to just to reflect on like what has happened in our world, you know, these past couple of years, uh, and even now, Steve, um, it speaks volumes of who we are and what we've been called to do. And really, we can still see that folks are struggling even today of what justice means. And that's a real powerful piece to me. Um, what are your thoughts, Steve? It's, it's got these three verbs, you know, these action verbs that are calling us to do some sort of act. You know, it's not, uh, which is fine, go read the Talmud, go read the Bible, read the Psalms and, and study. But this verse is saying also we are called to act, to do, to, um, you know, love and to walk. And so that seems direct enough. And yet each of those verbs telescopes out into a batch of imponderable questions. Yeah. You know, yeah. what is goodness and mercy? What does it mean to love that? What does it mean to do justice? It doesn't answer the question. It actually throws a huge question in our laps because aren't we faced with dilemmas and paradoxes every day out there? And, but we only have to make, we can only make one choice in each situation. Fine, do justice, act justly. Okay, what does that mean? Yesterday when I was talking with my kid, I got into a fight. You know, these are these are both um, good direction and directionless, you know, it's pointing us in a vague area, but not telling us what to do. That's really powerful, Steve. And it's interesting. You might appreciate this. And so, you know, the word justice has a translation from a Greek word, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this very right, but it's dikosony right? Which means divine approval of what is right in the eyes of God. And the word justice comes from two Hebrew words. Um, and so it means to, to be just means to be righteous. And so one of those Hebrew words is misphat and it's spelled M-I-S-P-H-A-T. And that means judgment as in the law of the courts or claims, okay? So when we think about what does it mean to do justice, it means to do the right thing with the divine of, of what's divine or approved in the eyes of God. Isn't that powerful? That's really great. I did not know uh, yeah. those words at all. You know, to do justice, so... We were talking earlier about the tumultuous times that we live in. So the last two years have had um, huge ramifications because of the isolation of the pandemic. Yeah. It's had huge continuing divide politically where yeah. people just view things not only so differently, but view each other as the evil. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had the whole George Floyd movement, the whole extension of the Me Too movement. I'm wondering how this affects you in the work that you do. First of all, so with inclusivity, in some ways it may be uh, sparking a lot more requests for your services, mm -hmm. but it also seems to be that 
that whole movement of Black Lives Matter seems to have stirred a backlash mm -hmm. where hundreds of thousands and millions of people don't see racism. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for someone like yourself, a woman of color, African-American woman? I mean, are you more saddened or more hopeful from the last two years? So it's really interesting because I, I feel like from my perspective of a woman of color, over the years, so if, even if we were to go back to the Constitution with the 15th and the 19th Amendment, um, you know, the rights that women receive came after that of men. Um, and then for women of color, it's always been different for women of color. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Like, for example, we talk about some of the work that we do. And, you know, if you go out and Google and you'll, especially after the George Floyd, you had all these organizations coming out and they were making their statements. And, you know, you mentioned Black Lives Matter and, you know, what exactly does that mean? And how does that translate into meaningful action for the greater good, right? And so when I think about it from that perspective, Women of color have always been invisible. Let me tell you what I mean. So let's say, for example, those organizations that are given the pushback, even when you look at, quote unquote, workforce diversity, when you start looking at your demographics and the data, even when organizations are disaggregating the data, you know, women of color, for the sake of their aspirational goals, are counted twice. And so there's been this whole experience around what does it mean to be an African-American woman, a woman? And the question I ask people is, what does it mean to be you? And so it's really, it's really difficult. It's, it's difficult from the perspective of always feeling like you have to explain who you are and as but as image bearers as an image bearer the question always been in my mind is what precludes people from seeing women of color and african-american women as image bearers and if we were to go all the way back in history if we were to go to um the origin of humankind. It's really interesting. I'll share a quick story that um, a couple of years ago, even before the pandemic, um, we went on vacation. We went to the Smithsonian and we were looking at, you've ever you've been to the Smithsonian? Yes. In DC? Yes. yes. It's been some years, but I, and they have so many different museums, but I was really struck by their natural history museum. Yeah. So have you, have you seen the one where it's showing the, you know, the origin of humankind where it shows the Neanderthal? Have you, have you seen that particular um, exhibit? I think so. It's even got like a little bronze life-size uh, statue of Homo habilis. Yes. 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 So it's really interesting. So if we think about, you know, the origin of humankind, you know, the mother of all living things was a woman. And I know I'm treading in some real um, territory, some territory that I kind of get. No, no, you're, you're treading in some truth. I mean, that just happens to be how it is. And so I've always been fascinated with how women um, have been treated. And so with this whole Black Lives Matter movement, 
It's, it's not, it wasn't anything new for a woman of color. It's always been her reality. It's now been a heightened sense of awareness. And so I am excited um, that there's another level of consciousness. And I, I tell you, particularly now, we know, we know that war is going on globally. And, you know, there's, dude, there's certain groups of people who've always struggled. They've always struggled. There's always been some type of travesty or some trauma that's been associated with their life experience or that have threatened their being. And so when things like, you know, George Floyd, uh, you know, we're at war now. So we see these travesties and there's so many other, you know, we think about the Holocaust, you know, we think about, you know, the transatlantic slave trade. So these things are all part of our history. But as things continue to manifest, it brings them to the forefront. And so it's getting the attention because it's now starting to affect more people. And so to go back to answer your original question, how has that affected me as a woman of color? It's always been my reality, Steve. And so as a woman of color, you learn, you learn as a little girl how to navigate a world that says obviously you don't belong or wasn't created for you okay and so it it looks at it from a totally different lens so my world view is very different when it comes to that I can does that get make that. sense absolutely i mean uh, um first of all i can imagine, and I try to imagine, I mean, as a white male myself, it's hard to fully imagine, but uh, African-Americans in general have to uh, school their children in a certain way about how to live in society. So I assume, you know, that has certain ramifications for men, but then you're also pointing out, which is not a surprise, that it is, it's got a different flavor also for African-American women. That's what I'm hearing from you. And I'm wondering, let me, well, first, do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. And then during even the most recent, you know, it seemed to me like, you know, there was the, uh, well, we could go back, you know, Reconstruction and there was a backlash and Civil Rights Movement and there was a backlash. Mm -hmm. It seems like, is it, what is it? It's like, like two steps forward and one and seven eighths steps back, it seems. Right. But then um, I thought, even more so than what happened in Ferguson, Missouri. In 2020, I thought, whoa, for the first time now, like happened in the 60s with King and the civil rights, there are enough white folks who are on board with this and the movement was gonna go more forward. That seems to have been stalled. But I guess this is my question to you. What, so do you feel there is still even a lack of acknowledgement or empowerment or a, a being treated differently for black women in the Black Lives Matter movement than men? Are they treated differently or do you sense a different? So I want to, so those, so there's a lot of layers to that. And so, you know, I think from the perspective of the Black Lives Movement, I wanna kind of separate all three of those because I think they serve very different purposes. And so, you know, I think about the Black Lives Movement, I think for the, the intent of the movement raised the level of consciousness. And so, of course, you know, there's a lot of resistance around, you know, there was the Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, however people, however people felt about it, you know, that's, 
that's based on their own personal experiences. But what we can, what we know for sure is that it raised a level of consciousness. Okay. And that level of consciousness was further intensified through social media. And so for that organization to be able to mobilize, to raise a level of consciousness to get people's attention, you know, it begs the question, does suffering serve a purpose? Absolutely it does. But when I think about, you know, how does it affect me as a woman of color, other groups, I can only speak for myself. But what I will say, when I think about what's happening in the world, I think this is God's business. I don't believe, this is just my belief, that for the most part, the average person is equipped to deal with the trauma, the revelations, the truth about what has always happened. But there wasn't a platform for it to be demonstrated or shown. Now you, a person can pull out their cell phone and you can see it. That never happened. Imagine, Steve, you, you mentioned, you know, the Civil Rights Acts in the 60s. Imagine what those folks went through during that time when there wasn't social media. Okay. Imagine that. I can't begin to imagine that. The other thing I would say, which I find fascinating when I think about the resistance that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has gotten, um, and then you think about, you know, biblical principles, kingdom principles, SQ fits in very nicely, you know, and all of those in my mind. But more importantly, I think the, the beauty of suffering is that for others who have not experienced that, the thought of having to do that gives people pause. Okay, and so you'll 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 see that now with you know what's being taught in the schools. Uh, one very controversial um, topic is CRT. Okay, um, so for some folks, it's always been there, but like. What are your thoughts around all the resistance and pushback around critical race theory? Me and is personally? that, yeah. You're asking me? Yeah. Um, so a whole batch of punchlines are going through my, a whole batch of sarcastic remarks are, are going through my head right now. But, and I, I will just leave them lay. Cause um, I think what happens with CRT is it's very uncomfortable for anyone to think of themselves as a bad guy. Mm -hmm. So I would describe this as a backlash and that uh, of people in power or of, of people who are involved in the race conversation, but don't want to be or feel uncomfortable in that, mm -hmm. which are white people. White people don't have to think about race. Black folks can't have that luxury. It is going to be around them and affect them in ways that um, white people can't imagine. So it seems like CRT has been, uh, and, and by the way, I'll just say one more thing. You know, 
uh, I'm kind of backed away from it now, but for four years, I was very involved in Braver Angels, which mm. is a national movement bringing um, conservatives and liberals together. And I learned a lot, including seeing a panel of uh, conservative African-American folks mm -hmm. who were saying, I don't want to be always judged through the lens of race. And they had very articulate arguments against the the fringes of CRT, I guess, you know, the, the, the people who want to take a look at every transaction and say, this is racist, this is racist, this is racist, this is racist, the way you buy your pens and paper is racist, you know, it, it can be, and in an academic setting, you want to push the boundaries and so on, but they were pointing out the parts of CRT that um, they did not agree with. I bring that up to point out that I understand there's a gem of truth about people who want to criticize CRT, but it seems to be to me more to be part of the backlash about not wanting to deal with the discomfort of exactly what you brought up, which is decades and centuries of suffering that we have been a part of, that we have fostered, that we have benefited from, that we don't want to look at. Yeah, I think that's so, Steve, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that's what it is. I think it's that fear of people not wanting to have that experience. Just imagine that. Can you imagine? I mean, think about what's happening right now in Ukraine. Can you imagine that? I really can't. Like whole blocks being bombed. Yeah. Like my daughter who lives two miles away in an apartment building and that apartment right. building devastated. No, no, it's, I, I can't imagine my city, no water. Right, no, it's, it's horrific. Right. So, and so then, so we think about what's happening in Ukraine. If we were to ask our, you know, our Jewish colleagues, they would talk, they could talk oh. about the Holocaust, right? Yeah. yeah. If we were, so if you think about descendants of, you know, of African descent, then we talk about the transatlantic slave trade. And Impossible just, to comprehend, right? Yes. So the travesties um, that define know part of our our history and in many respects the American ethos was predicated on some of it and so that history is undeniable the question is how do we move forward and so for my colleagues to talk about equity what does that look like what does that mean and so you talk about that on the one hand but then that's where I think about SQ okay and so part of it is what we do. The other part of it is I think we're missing is who are we being? What does that look like? How are we showing up? And how are we experiencing each other? There's something that, you know, always resonated with me and always stuck with me from my early um, training in SQ was we determine as compassion, looking at the difference between compassion and or it was empathy, sympathy, and compassion. I'll never forget how that was explained. You know, we talk about empathy from the perspective of walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. But Steve, can we really walk a mile in somebody else's shoes? Can I really walk in your shoes as a white male? Can you really walk in my shoes um, as a woman of color? Pretty hard pretty hard but then we talk about compassion and compassion 
is, you know, a part of our higher self where it says, I care enough about you, Steve, to use my resources to help relieve your suffering. So it doesn't matter if you're a white male. I see you as not only a human being, but as an image bearer. And so when I'm compassionate, I can then care enough about you to relieve your suffering. And so sometimes I wonder, and I'll just kick this out here. I'd love to get your take on it. I'm wondering when I think about empathy, you know, have we misinterpreted what empathy is or is that a tall order? Because if you go your typical leadership courses, in fact, I was in a session not too long ago and they talked about empathy, empathy, empathy. And I sat there like, I can never walk in your shoes. You can never walk in mine because my testimony is mine alone and yours is yours alone. However, I can't care enough about you to relieve your suffering. And so I'm just curious as to your take on empathy versus compassion. Um, <laughs> I'm really uh, loving how you're framing that. You're twisting and spinning my thoughts on empathy, you're bringing up a very good point. I think at the very least, empathy is a good way to start the conversation. If you're working with organizations, I mean, a lot of them don't even know it's something at a base emotional intelligence level, they should even be open to caring about other people in that way. So many of us and organizations, but just as individuals close ourselves off from emotions. So even asking people, can you empathize? Can you start to empathize? Is at least a good place to start. But you're bringing up this really good point that I'm wrapping my head around. Um, I can't walk in your shoes. I guess I can't walk with you fully. But if empathy opens the door towards compassion, mm -hmm. which I so like, something opened up in me heart-wise when you started to make that distinction. Mm -hmm. Because there's a way that I can treat empathy very intellectually. Mm -hmm. that you kind of bypass with that. It, it kind of is like, it. I don't have to understand what empathy is in order to move forward with compassion. So right. that, was, that was a beautiful moment for me. Wow. Thank you for sharing mm. that, Steve. Thank you. Um, I, I think about that. And I, that's one of the things I love so much about SQ and the, the 21 skills. And you know, when you really start thinking about it, like I said, part of my whole, personal development journey i mean i really appreciated you know this the whole sq process coupled that with you know just study of spiritual principles biblical principles kingdom principles and it goes back to you know the first question that we had what's required of me you know and so when i think about who we are and how we're showing up you know, we spend so much time, Steve, trying to figure out what our life purpose is. We spend so much time trying to figure out, you know, who we are. And so it just takes me back to some very fundamental things that, again, when I think about why this work is important about our children and how do we create these beloved communities, you know, how are we training up our children? Because you know as well as I do, a lot of what we're dealing with right now are learned behaviors. Yeah. So just imagine imagine if we began from a place of being image bearers we began from a place of trying to understand what's required of us and then working from there then through the lens of empathy 
and ultimately in compassion. That to me, Steve, that to me, Steve. Pretty fulfilling. So oh, when yeah. you say, you know, about teaching our children, it seems like the best way to teach our children is to model. And so that's what I take you to mean by image bearing. Can we each be, show, demonstrate, have it come and arise from within me out in the world, what that thing is that I want me to be in the world to be? Is that what you mean by image bearer? Kind of. So when I think about image bearer, I'm just coming straight from biblical principles. Um, and I'm coming from a perspective of um, work from biblical principles of image bearer being made in an image of God, as we oh, all are, yes, you know, yes. regardless of our faith tradition. We all are made in the image of God. So that's really where I'm coming from. And so, you know, we spend so much time thinking about, you know, who we are as male and female versus what it means to be human. What does it mean to be fully human, right? And so if we came from that space that we were all fully human as this image bearer, I believe, I believe, I believe that that would really begin to transform the narrative. I, I absolutely do. And the other thing I would say um, one of the points that you were making is train up our children. And I, I kicked that around a lot. And I've come to some thoughts around if adults are broken, are we training up broken children? If we don't do something about it. I, I right. like the word you used earlier about trauma. There's like it is all over and each of us as that warped sapling doesn't do something to sort of bring it back then yes that is what we will pass on because we all have something in our backpack we all do we all got a little <laughs> something in the backpack steve yeah. <laughs> we got something in the backpack that we're yeah. working on um but those experiences you know they are responsible for shaping who we are and who we're becoming and so it takes me back to a question that I always ask myself is that the suffering serves a purpose. And if so, how can you find a good in some really bad circumstances? And I think we've all, at least once in our life, had some unpleasant experience. Of course, of course. And I do think we can all, I don't know what how to phrase this, but we pick up, I don't know if it's resonant or generational, but we get the suffering of the world. That's why we work so hard to shut it out. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of a, a point I would also point to is maybe that is what the Christ is. You've been using this phrase, the beauty of suffering. I have never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. And, um, but there is a purpose that's served there. You know, it's like we're born and maybe when we're born, we're the closest to spirit. We're the most in the image of God. And then we go through life getting banged about and learning how to navigate in the material world and that's what forms our ego and you got to get pretty good at getting the grades or impressing the teacher or in following the parents rules or whatever get impressing the boss all of that builds the ego but then we've suppressed that natural image within us and it's almost like you got to dig back through all the mud to get back to the essence of who we are yeah. And so is that part of what 
that's the beauty of suffering is either for us individually or as this human race that somehow evolved out of some piece that's in the, the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. We had a common human core and we have been loving and suffering ever since. I think so, Steve. I think so. And you you reminded me of, you know, the whole awareness of ego and higher self, right? And, you know, understanding the difference between our desires of our egos and our desires of our higher self. So absolutely, I think so. I yeah. absolutely think so. Well, as we bring this episode back to a close, um, which I just enjoy this conversation with you, Carmen, so much. What is, uh, would you leave our listeners with any provocative question or reflection or something for them to have as a takeaway? What's either from something from our conversation here or just something looking forward that you think people would benefit reflecting on? I would, Steve, and I'm going to go back to what's required of us. Uh, what's required of you and what's yours to do? That's what I would leave people with. And I, and I say that because I feel like we spend all of our waking lives trying to find our purpose. There's so many books about purpose, um, so many sessions about purpose. But to ask, and there's two things I would leave the listeners with and two questions to ponder. Who do you say you are and what's required of you? Those would be two questions that I would leave. With the Those are questions that are worthy of pondering. Mm -hmm. Carmen, thank you so much for being on our episode here. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, wonderful. So thank you to all of you listening, and we hope you come back for another episode of SQ Unplugged, Conversations with SQ21 Coaches. Bye-bye, Carmen. Bye, Steve.